computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we're excited to welcome Matthew Stafford, an angel investor, author, and co-founder of the Nine Others Community. The network has touched the lives of 5,000 entrepreneurs across 45 cities worldwide. Matthew's co-authored a book, Find Your Nine Others, which shares the challenges the entrepreneurs from all around the world from the Nine Others community have faced and details their thinking and the behavior traits that help them overcome those challenges. So during the conversation, we delve into some of the insights from the book. We also explore the misconceptions about age investing, discuss how running Nine Others has influenced not only his investment strategies, but Matthew's approach to life and work, and also hear about the unexpected outcomes that have arisen too. We also examine the crucial skills of resilience and decision-making. And we look at how Matthew's perspective on success has evolved through hosting nine of his events. It's a really insightful discussion on the intricacies of angel investing, entrepreneurship, the power of community, and the importance of resilience and trusting your gut in the face of challenges. So thanks for tuning in. Let's dive right in. Where I'd love to start is, you know, you're an angel investor. And, and what had you kind of get bitten by the angel investing bug? Oh, it was, it's great. I mean, I absolutely love it. You know, nice to be here. Nice to see you as well, Alex. Yeah. So it was, I mean, my career, I think it falls into two parts. In the first part, I was working in, you know, big corporates and banks and such like, so that was all that. And then, you know, and I was aware of startups. So I I studied computer science. And I, when I was studying that, Twitter launched, Facebook launched, and all, you know, it was a really, really interesting time whilst I was studying. I didn't know anything about the investment side of things. And then, you know, two or three years later, I went to business school and I went to business school not having an idea what I wanted to do afterwards, right? So I I was pretty unhappy with my career, the time and my job and where I was working. So I was pretty unsatisfied, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was at business school that I learned all about venture capital yeah. and that there were these small companies and individuals who would put you know little bits of money into lots of companies and you know a lot of those didn't work out but where they did they could work out incredibly well and it's almost you know it's almost uncapped gains right if you invest in a bunch of companies and one of them goes goes absolutely stratospheric you know it's almost uncapped as to the to the money you can make and the impact it can have which is very very different from working in a huge bank with tens of thousands of other people no it makes a lot of sense i, mean, I talked to a guy on the podcast um recently and we, he was a, an entrepreneur he used to work for mars the um confectionery company yeah he i mean i thought it was very impressive he approached them and said he wanted to set up a specific part of the business as a complete separate entity, but he knew he would have to sacrifice his corporate benefits. You know, he would take the risk of, mm -hmm. I guess, with the, you know, he's still going to be part of Mars. He was going to take some of their employees with him. But yeah, it's, yeah, the upside that he eventually also got, got to tap into was then he's got access to the profits. And so I guess it's like being pragmatic, isn't it, really, in your approach? It is. And it was like, you know, working in big companies. I mean, I wanted to work hard, right? So I had this appetite to work really, really hard. And I was going through business school and it was it was part-time whilst I was working. So, you know, I was I was working pretty hard at to, at my job and then working hard at, at university as well. So I kind of wanted to put the effort in, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted it to make a difference to me as well. Yeah. And sometimes in big companies where you've got thousands of people, generally people are kind of working at a 
at a walking pace you know some people are working really hard some people aren't working hard at all and then there's a bunch of people in the middle and it really doesn't make that much difference to their lives and a lot of people there like I was were were pretty unhappy so I knew I had to make make a change I didn't quite know what that was but then learning more about the investing side of the startup world it just really really appealed you know dealing with dealing with loads of interesting people and and the wonderful wonderful thing about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship is you know there's no right answer there's no one right answer no one can really tell you what to do you've got to do what's right for yourself and you know the mission you're on and all this sort of stuff and there are sacrifices and price to pay and all the rest of it but if you do work hard and you know there's a bit of luck and you can get the right people around you it can have a huge impact and i just thought you know dealing with those kind of people dealing with lots of those kinds of people in on the investment side of things would be would be fantastic so out the back of business school i got a job with an early stage investor and i mean it was just the best job i've ever ever had it was wow. just brilliant i loved it that's wonderful well just tell us say you know obviously i think people have a miss maybe perception of what an angel investor is but could you tell us what your experience of maybe the, the biggest misconception about angel investors is oh misconception i mean it probably was the reality when i started because there weren't many angel investors right now i think i think pretty much everybody's going to be an angel investor right so at the beginning of the 2010s there weren't many angel investors around there weren't there weren't many startups around hmm. there were some people doing it and there were some people investing but typically the typical angel investor you know if people had made a bit of money they would you know buy a nice house and a nice car or a boat or something and then you might never see them again yeah. you know they would disappear and you know i was in this startup world investing world and we looked to san francisco and and the valley and there were people there who'd worked in startups growing startups made a bit of money and reinvesting back in the ecosystem and that there just wasn't much of that going on back then so i think the perception was the reality that you know to be an angel investor you had to have a massive pile of money you know, like the dragons on the TV and people would come in cap in hand and, you know, you would give out bits of money to the to the needy almost. And I suppose that's maybe what it was like back then, because that's those those were the very, very small number of people who actually were investing in angel investing. Now it's very, very different. You know, I think I think that 2010s was very much the year of the entrepreneur. Right. So it was a bit weird at the beginning. And then at the end, the more, the better. Everyone's an entrepreneur. Fantastic. I think it's going to happen quicker, but I think the 2020s are very much going to be the the decade of the angel investor. So at the beginning, not many people are doing it. And people's perception is that you have to have a big stack of money and you have to start investing that you know, into, into a bunch of startups. I think more and more people are going to realize that they can do it sort of as they go. And, you know, I call myself a pay-as-you-go angel investor. So I've not got, you know, I'm not sitting on millions here, right. you know, handing it out here and there as i go so i do some work I, I i save some money and i try to get better at angel investing as i go and hopefully some of those will will really pay off yeah no interesting no i can i can see how it's changed and i, I guess yeah it's also kind of two-sided kind of marketplace and you've got to have the startups to invest in if they they weren't there to, you know you don't have anything to put your money into so that makes a lot of sense great well let's get into to nine others itself so maybe you could just start just quickly paint a picture for people because I've been to, you know, one of your meals. I've been to kind of your parties as well. But maybe just paint a picture of what a nine others meal looks like. Yeah. Um, and then I've got, I'd love to ask some more questions about that. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I love it. So I started 
what is nine others with with my co-founder katie lewis back in 2011 and we were working for these investors so i was working for one investor katie was working for another and we were part of a part of a project to help the startup ecosystem get investment right so it was it was a government-backed project so it was fantastic paid for by the government to kind of go and make stuff happen in the startup world and this is in 2010 2011 throughout throughout 2011 was the was the main year and so we ran workshops we ran you know pitch events with friendly vcs and the 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 few angel investors that we knew we did mentoring and did one-to-one and 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 had you know workshop sessions as well all that kind of stuff to try and on the one side help educate the startups to to what investment looked like so what the difference between an angel and a vc was the different paths that companies had taken you know the terms that they would get the pros and cons of all of these sorts of stuff so you know we spent a good yeah 18 months working on that program and as part of that you know we wanted to introduce those startups to investors Hmm. and one of the ideas i came up with was well why don't we do a bunch of dinners Hmm. so we can have you know startups who'd either you know, could, could kind of been through our workshops or who are already investment ready, you know, they would, we'd have a dinner, they would pitch for a couple of minutes, the investors that we knew would come in and, and they would ask some questions for a few more minutes. And then we go to the next person and the next person and all in amongst, you know, a nice dinner. So we put those together. And because it was, because it was a government program, we didn't get involved in the in the deals so we were just there to make this stuff happen but all of those interactions at the dinners they all led to follow-up meetings a lot of those led to you know the next meeting and then some of those led to investment and we didn't need to get involved in the deal at all but we were just there to make it happen and it was brilliant so we were just you know it was off the chart successful anyway what we noticed at each of these investor dinners and entrepreneur dinners would the entrepreneurs would kind of huddle together in the corner at the end the last 20 25 minutes and it used to really annoy us and particularly katie because she you know we'd got them there to talk to the investors yeah and we thought you are missing this opportunity by talking to each other you know you can do that anytime Mm. you know you should be talking to the investors but we kind of realized once that was that had happened with enough people and enough different people and it always it was always the same we tried to figure out what was going on and it occurred to us and in talking to people that the entrepreneurs they'd kind of done the pitching bit right so they they'd made their pitch they'd answered the answered the investors questions you know they'd got their cards they'd got their details they'd arranged to follow up and then in that last 20 25 minutes they they were talking to other entrepreneurs who who were kind of in their in their shoes but not in their business right so they understood what entrepreneurship was about and what they were going through and they were talking to peers about the normal everyday challenges of Mm. business and we realized that actually gosh they can't do that anywhere else yeah you know our pitching events and some of the ones that we organized and some of the ones that they'd just done, they were in sales mode, right? Because they're selling shares in their company to these investors or at other events, they're pitching to a huge crowd and they're trying to get users or they're recruiting team members. Mm-hmm. So everything kind of had to be brilliant. And there was nowhere that they really could talk about the everyday challenges, like, you know, where where, where do you hire from? You know, what service providers do you use? Who can you trust? you know, I've got an offer from such and such investor, what do you think of them? You know, or someone's not paying my invoice, how do I, how do I follow that up? But you know, in a way that won't blow up? Yeah. 
you know, hiring and firing, all that kind of everyday stuff that, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't mention that in a pitch. They couldn't mention it in a deck. Yeah. Uh, you know, their friends that maybe work in other companies just don't understand what they're going through. Their partner at home sick of hearing about it. Yeah. And some of the problems, you know, some of the problems, you know, you think, okay, I'll talk to my co-founder about that. But what if the problem is the co-founder? Yeah. You know, so anyway, all of that kind of happened in 2011. And, you know, we were super successful on that project. And we, Katie and I thought, right, is there something we can do when that project came to an end mm -hmm. that would kind of keep our network alive and be helpful to those entrepreneurs? And we thought, well, we've done a bunch of dinners with investors and entrepreneurs. Why don't we do a dinner just for the entrepreneurs to try and have the network help the network? And anyway, that long that long preamble is what Nine Others is all about. Right. So we'd run these dinners and we thought, let's do a dinner for entrepreneurs. We called it Nine Others because it's only ever 10 people. So we wanted to keep it deliberately small. Mm. And, you know, it's yourself and nine others. We didn't want to get tempted into having a dozen people or 15 people or 20 people because we just thought having a small group, loosely curated so founders who are facing challenges or people working in startups who are facing these sort of business challenges, they can come along, they share what their challenge is. So the question at every dinner is what's keeping you up at night. Mm -hmm. And then we spend 10, 15 minutes trying to help that person out. And, you know, there's no hierarchy. So you don't come to nine others to hear from somebody who's been there and done it before. You know, everybody who comes to nine others has got something to contribute and something to learn from the others. And often, like I said at the beginning, the attraction of working with entrepreneurs is that there's no right answer. So sometimes somebody does explain their challenge that's keeping them up at night. And half the table says, you should do this. The other half the table says, how about that? Mm. So that you don't get the answer. But the whole purpose is to try and be useful and try and help that person, you know, take the next step forward. Yeah. No, that's so great. I love that story. And I can, yeah, really see where there was the gap. Like, you know, people, where where do you go? I mean, you might have a mentor or you might have an investor who would be acting as an advisor. But other than that, where else do you ask those questions about all those kind of different parts of the business? You know, money Yeah, but if you've got if you've got an investor or an advisor, I mean they're fantastic and they're sure. great, but they've got they've got an incentive they're in the business yeah. as well. Right. I think there's quite there's something about just being, you know, deliberately vulnerable. Mm. This is my big challenge in a confidential environment with your peers who don't have, you know, they don't have a stake in it. Yeah. So they can be really candid and people have been really candid about some of those, about some of those challenges and, and like really pushed back. Whereas an investor might have a different kind of viewpoint because they've got a different incentive. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to pick up on what you said there about, you know, you'll, you'll pose the question of what is the, thing that's keeping you up at night and then you'll have different answers because i was i was reading the the chapter in your book about you know should we or how do you make decisions relate to your gut and i i thought it was really interesting you know how you kind of frame that but yeah i i was curious to know what what do people take away so if they get multiple answers is it just they have to take away an answer that that maybe they it speaks to their gut or, or yeah how, how do people kind of go away from these dinners what do they take away from well i think where there are opposing views I think it's important, again, another another sort of aim of Nine Others is to make people really think about it. Mm -hmm. So often, as I'm, I'm sure people experience, when you have that kind of gut feel about something, it sometimes takes time to be able to articulate what that's saying. Right. So you might feel that something's not right, but you're hearing all sorts of smart people 
tell you, you know, the opposite, but your gut says, you know, your gut says go left, but everyone's telling you to go right, you know, but you can't quite articulate why you want to go in in that, in the direction your gut's telling you. So it does take a bit of time. So I think we, you know, encourage people who do get those opposing views just to kind of let it settle Mm. and then try to dig into why your gut feeling is saying go one way and then, and then take a step forward and then try it. Right. So you just got to give it a shot after doing that. And I think that's what, you know, that's what we try to get across in the, in the, you know, listen to your gut part. There will be some reason it's telling you that you just have to spend a bit of time or go for a walk or a long run or something like that to try and put into words what it's saying. And then you have to decide and then you have to go forward. Yeah. No, I think that's very helpful. Um, the other and you're not always going to get it right. You no, know, sure. like your gut, your gut decision might say do one thing and it might turn out to be a complete disaster, right. but at least, at least you've done it and then you know, and then you can try something else. The, the worst is to, you know, navel gaze and do nothing. Sure. It's almost like you're refining your gut in some ways. Maybe you can mm. take away and say, yeah, I know to trust my gut in, in that extent. Cause I think you did say in your book how it's the guts helpful for the kind of your why, like your, your mission. It might be yeah. not be helpful in specific you know do i use that in supplier or hire this person so much or maybe it, it is but um, it's a bit more of a high level kind of tool is that what you're saying yeah it can be i mean it's you know i think that's the important thing just to listen to that and understand that because if it feels right it probably is yeah. or if it feels wrong it's probably not and <laughs> it's it's difficult and it takes a bit of confidence and time and all the rest of it but even with even with nine others right so nine others we do a dinner once a month mm. and it's really simple and, you know, people pay to come to the dinner, but that just simply covers the cost of the dinner. So it's not a massive money making exercise. However, people really like it. And we've been doing it for a long time. And lots of people come and lots of people come back. And then we have parties, like you say, in the summer and party in the winter and lots of people enjoy it. So over the course of the last 11, 12 years, people have very, very smart people, some of them with investor with investment and offers of investment have said, why don't you do more of this? You need to do more dinners with more people, more events, uh, you know, make make more out of it. And for a long time, that didn't feel right. And for a long time, I thought, am I stupid for not doing that? Yeah. But then there was something in my gut that was telling me that that wasn't right for me and for nine others. But it's really difficult when you're getting these smart people to say, well, if it's so good, do more. And for my gut to say, do you know what? One a month, just covering itself and it'll lead to other things is what I want to happen. And and now, you know, I mean, that's what's happened and I'm much more confident in that nowadays, but in the early days, that was really, really difficult to, to, to articulate why it didn't feel right. No, I, I can totally imagine that. Um, a couple of other questions you mentioned in the book that Matthew are, one is about um, kind of almost resilience, really. So you're talking about how to keep getting up, you know, when you've kind of been knocked down and then how to get comfortable being uncomfortable so i'm just curious to know you know how do you think we can kind of teach resilience as a skill you know from your personal experience but also maybe from what you've seen heard at the the nine others dinners as well um i think a lot of resilience comes from examples of leadership and experience so i think if you are everyone needs that resilience so if you are if you want to have that it's uncomfortable you know the things that the things that make you resilient are uncomfortable right because it's the tough stuff that you get through and that builds your resilience muscle and no one really wants to have those things because they're uncomfortable but at the other side 
uh, you've got the benefit. And I think if you uh, are inspired by someone or if you're looking up to someone you know, in, who is successful and could be all sorts of different definitions of what success is, then it's probably likely that that person's gone through some difficulties to get there because it doesn't come it doesn't come easy. So I think those kind of examples and to really like think what they had to go through to get that can help you realize that you need a bit of resilience. But then, yeah, you have you do have to experience tough times, I think, to really, really build that. And I read a I read another another book a few months ago called The Tools, which is which is excellent. It was off the back of a, uh, a Netflix documentary called Stutz. There's this psychiatrist called Stutz, and he wrote a book called The Tools. And one of them that I remember that I've got written on my uh, pin board ahead of me is is about pain and the the rule or the tool rather in this book about difficult situations is 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 that there will be pain but you've got to say you know bring it on i love it right you've got to get in that mindset of kind of bring on the pain i love the pain and if you're you know facing a difficult dis- situation then i think that kind of mindset to run towards that will will help build up some resilience as well yeah i love that i need to use that in the gym i think next time i'm there i love the pain yeah but um no i think that's great um i guess it was a kind of retrospective thing isn't it it's sometimes we don't realize we can look back on situations years in the past and only realize actually how beneficial they were and you mm. know we think back to them. and also i guess our perspective on it can change as we grow and evolve ourselves in that it was a horrible situation to go through but then what have we learned out of it and it was probably the most formative so yeah amazing the other thing I wanted to touch on was you talked about success there. Um, and that's another question about, you know, what does success look like? Has your perspective on success changed through the course of hosting Nine Others, would you say? Yeah, completely. Because at the beginning, we thought, you know, perhaps this does have to be some huge money-making uh, right. extravaganza. Um, and we didn't, I suppose, you know, at the beginning of something, you don't really know what the end's going to look like or what success is going to look like after a period of time. But then you can break that down. So people enjoyed coming to the dinners. So we kept doing them month after month. You know, we did the very, very first one in December 2011. And Katie and I put that on. And it was our problem because it was, okay, this is our challenge. We think this might be a good idea to host in a deliberately small, loosely curated dinners for entrepreneurs. You know, do you think that's a good idea? And we got together a group of people that we knew would challenge us about what that what that could look like. And some people said, do do one thing. Some people said, do the opposite thing. So the normal kind of stuff, but that was our challenge at the very first, very first dinner. And we gathered all that feedback and some of it felt right. Some of it didn't. And then we put a dinner on in the, in the January of the, of the following year. So the next month with a ticket price on it and all the rest of it. And it's never really changed from there. And, but it was, it was lovely. The success for us was month to month because we enjoyed the dinners and we enjoyed bringing people together and seeing them benefit and find them useful and then those people would say oh you know i should introduce you to so and so who will come along you know because we started obviously start with 10 people and now it's thousands of people who've been so yeah you know people the success for us was people recommending other entrepreneurs to come to the dinners that was great but yeah over the years like i mentioned you know sometimes we thought should it be this should it be something else would that make you know make it more successful but then now, I guess success is, you know, a big success for us is still being around after 10 years. Yeah. When we hit when we hit the 10 year mark, 
I mean, it was remarkable. You know, we 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 love that. A lot of a lot of things aren't around ten years later, yeah. uh, and and we'd you know we we still were, which was a huge success. And then after doing that, we did think, you know, there there are some amazing stories and things that we've learned after doing this month after month with hundreds of events and thousands of people. And that's when we thought, okay, we better write some of these down and try and try and get them out to more people. Oh, fantastic. I guess, yeah, success is relative, isn't it? It's all. And in the beginning, like I said, like when, you know, people were offering us investment or offering us this great advice from really smart people to make it into something, make it into a members club, a subscription club, an events business, you know, doing more, more, more in lots of different areas. It made sense and it sounded good. And I thought, am I, am I stupid? Because that might be my success. But again, it just didn't feel right. And now I'm really pleased that that we didn't go down that road because that road may be a fantastic sure. business for somebody and that's what they want as their success, but it just didn't fit with what we wanted for ours. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm, I'm also curious, you know, has hosting kind of nine others changed how either maybe you invest, maybe how you work with your portfolio or, you know, has it changed any other aspect of your life? You know, you can kind of reflect on that. Yeah, it's changed everything. Really? I mean, investing side of things was always my aim. So I I was started working for that investment company in 2010. Absolutely loved it. I was with them for nearly four years. Really, really good experience. I've you know the hardest I've ever worked at a job and the most satisfied I've ever I'd ever become. But I always wanted to do the investing thing myself. But again, like I said, I've not I'm not sitting on a pile of money, so I had to do it in a different kind of way. And now that's what I'm doing. So I angel invest some of my own money. I have a I have a syndicate that I run that if I invest in something, you know, more often than not, I'll put it to my syndicate to see whether they want to invest. I've started a couple of funds and I've worked with a couple of very wealthy people to invest some of their money. And it does, it's forever changing. Like my kind of investment thesis, I guess, is is forever changing over the years and forever refining. But it's all changed because of nine others and the investment opportunities that I want to back all come from nine others. The connections all come from nine others. And the the kind of thesis of my investing becomes in the way that we've run nine others. And because for me, it's, and people know this, but sometimes they don't always act it out. Investing in startups, especially at the early stages, is all about the people running the startup. So you've got to be able to I think you've got to be able to evaluate and observe the people running the startup yeah. and people accept that and know that, but no, no one else I've met has a mechanism for doing that because they get pitched and they think they have to decide straight away based on the pitch and based on that round. And and I don't, I take a much, much longer term view and try to understand the people. And I can do that, you know, having, having hosted nine others every month for, 11, nearly 12 years, you start to see patterns of people and how they behave and how they conduct themselves and all this sort of stuff. And I'm doing that with thousands of people. So when I'm investing in companies and I don't do loads, I did four last year, I've done one so far this year that, you know, I might do a couple more this year. So it's not, I'm not doing dozens and dozens every month. You know, when, when evaluating people is, is, you know, top of my priority list for assessing the company having sat down and had dinner with people and talked about problems and tried to figure out the solutions to those problems is really, really helpful. 
yeah that makes a lot of sense and as, as i think back to the the nine levels that i went to you kind of see you can get a real sense of someone can't you because one they're going to share with you what's keeping them up at night in terms of their kind of you get into their world a little bit but also then and then sharing in terms of trying to help the other people you, you learn something from that about someone don't you in terms of how they're thinking about the solution they're being presented with by the other person so yeah. yeah, it builds up the picture, right? I mean, you know, if hundreds and thousands of people come to nine others, and I'm not going to invest in all of them. That sort of helps me figure out the patterns for the few that I might invest in. And, you know, the main the main aim of nine others, obviously, is to be helpful oh. and to have the other people help the other people. So that's, you know, priority number one, and that happens an awful lot. But yeah, you can get a good sense for, you know, how what makes someone tick Yeah, if you do that and then, you know, meet them over the course of a few months. Right, well... A couple more questions, Matthew, and we'll start to wrap up. But um, first of all, you know, this is the Intelligent Performance Podcast. So I'm curious to know, for you, what would you define as intelligent performance? I mean, one of the main things that I look for when investing is self-awareness. Right. And I think intelligent performance, the thing that springs to mind is to be aware of what you're good at and where you can perform mm. and also where you can't. Um, you know, sometimes, especially entrepreneurs, they're leading a company, they think they have to be good at everything. And in the beginning, maybe you do have to do everything. But as you progress, you realize that other people not only are better at some things than than you are yourself, but they enjoy those things a lot more. So they should be, you know, they should be let off the leash to really, really focus on those sorts of things. A lot of the time, and again, maybe this is back to my previous career in bigger companies, you know, you kind of got to work on the things that you're not so good at to bring them up to scratch. Actually, maybe it's better to identify, you know, intelligently where you really can perform and then narrow down on that. And it's often probably an 80-20 thing. So you're probably, you know, extremely good at a small number of things. And it might only be one thing in the in the company, but just keep doing that. And then other people's one thing will cover, will cover the rest. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot. Tell us the last question I've got really is yeah what what's the future hold for nine others like I mean I I could say what t- ten years from now what do you what does it look like but maybe I won't put a time frame on it but what what's the future hold for nine others in your in your kind of planning Well I've said for a long time that we can always do a nine others so whether things go extremely well you yeah. know hit the jackpot on some of the investments I can still do a dinner once a month and I'd love to I yeah. wouldn't want to stop that and similarly if it all goes horribly wrong then I'm sure I can still host a dinner each month because that will be helpful. And that might be, that might get me out of the hole if if that comes along. So I kind of always want to do it at the minute. I mean, I enjoy it. People enjoy it. And I've thought that for a while, you know, whether things go extremely well or don't go extremely well, then I can always do it. And then more recently, again, you never, I never want to tell the future, but it would be pretty amazing if nine others like outlasted me doing it. Because we have had hosts in dozens and dozens of cities around the world. And, you know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow or carry on doing nine others for a few more decades, it would be it would be lovely if it carried on. So that those are the kind of two thoughts in my mind at the minute. Okay. Well, it sounds great. Well, I think it's a real contribution to having been there, you know, having met people who've been to the, the mills as well. And yeah, it's a real contribution. And as you said at the beginning, I could see that there's a gap that you've really filled with. Uh, it's just also a lovely experience, you know, a really enjoyable group of people to be around. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Matthew, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been wonderful. Yeah, enjoy your day. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Thanks.